Welcome to Jubilee Fellowship Church. How are you guys? Good morning. Good morning. I'm Evan Martin. I'm the campus pastor at our Lakewood campus and just want to say hello from uh, all the people at Lakewood. It's good to see you guys here at Lone Tree, but I want to say welcome also to anybody who would be watching us online this morning. We are glad that uh, you are joining us. Uh, however you are participating, it might be a podcast later on, but uh, we are glad that you are here. And so a uh, special welcome to this crowd today at Lone Tree. Uh, quick update, uh, like I like to do to give you guys a glimpse into some of our other campuses. We over at Lakewood just launched a uh, third service for the weekend, and so now we have Saturday night and uh, Sunday morning at 9 and 11 to uh, match you guys over here, and so uh, we are loving life and having a good time over there. So uh, I get the privilege of opening up a brand new series. It's the last six major events of uh, the life of Jesus leading up to and including his resurrection. So what does that mean? It means it's our Easter series. Can you believe that we are already talking about Easter? Um, so I think it was snowing yesterday. So uh, it's probably going to be 70 degrees today. I think that's what that means. So uh, I brought my coat here uh, for an analogy, but also to potentially wear driving home this afternoon in case it snows again. So, um, but uh, the teaching team, uh, we decided to, to uh, give Pastor John the second uh, lesson in this series, which is the fig tree. Uh, it's where Jesus looks at a fig tree uh, and he goes, he approaches it and wants to eat a fig from it, but uh, there are no figs. So he curses the fig tree and it withers. Um, and so we decided that we'll leave the theological construct of that uh, passage of scripture to Pastor John. So uh, I get to talk to you guys today about the triumphant entry which is typically, if you've been to church um, for any length of time, it's usually a sermon that's delivered on Palm Sunday, the uh, week leading up to Easter. But uh, since we decided to include the six major events uh, leading up to that uh, day, then uh, we're going to start with that. So I'm going to hang out in uh, Matthew chapter 21 today, and I'm going to start by reading uh, 11 verses out of that chapter. Um, but before I do that, I want to uh, just ask God to um, help me communicate clearly and to just open up our hearts and minds to hear what he would uh, want to say to us today. So if you would join me in that, uh, and then we'll get started. So Heavenly Father, we come before you, and God, we recognize that we have the privilege of gathering here and uh, learning from your word, trying to hear your voice and to give you praise. God, we can do that. We can gather freely without um, any uh, external force telling us what we can and cannot do. And so, God, we are glad for uh, that freedom. God, we are so thankful that you've given us your word. It's the Bible, the best-selling book of all time, the most stolen book in all of history, it's preached out of every day, every week, every month of the year, and yet we find that it's inexhaustible in its richness of describing your love and your pursuit for us. And so, God, as we uh, dive into this story of you riding on a donkey, entering the ancient city of Jerusalem, Jesus, we just ask that you would reveal more of yourself to us that you would prove to, yourself, to us that you came as our king and as our judge and also as our Messiah, as our Savior, God. We submit to you. We open up our minds and open up our hearts. Have your way in us and through us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me read this scripture to you, and uh, we will kind of describe the setting. I'm going to give you... Um, a little bit of a history lesson so that we can insert ourselves into this story. So if you have your Bible, follow with me, Matthew 21. It's the first book of the New Testament. Uh, the verses will also be up on the screen behind me. Matthew 21, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, quote, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. 
They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, just like we just sang. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And, we enter, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So verse five there is a quotation from a small book in the Bible in the Old Testament, a prophet named Zechariah, 500 years before that, penned those words. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a, on a colt, the foal of the beast of a burden. And so what I like to do is when I read a passage of scripture like that, I like to insert myself into that narrative so that I can feel what they were feeling so that I can see what they were seeing and smell what they were smelling and touch what they were touching. No, inherently, what they knew is they, the crowd, mostly Hebrews, grew up in the context of Jewish culture. So if I were to stand up here and give a dissertation on the history of the United States and say things like the Declaration of Independence, the American Revolution, a name like Paul Revere, we would know the details of some of those phrases just because we grew up, most of us, in America. We're citizens of the United States, and so we know what Paul Revere did. We know what the Declaration of Independence meant, right? And so let me take you uh, on a quick journey back in time so that we can establish what the city of Jerusalem meant for those people who were gathering in that city to celebrate Passover. You know that Jesus was coming with his disciples at the beginning of the week, and so were also hundreds and thousands of people on uh, a pathway to Jerusalem from all over Israel to celebrate uh, this national holiday. Well, what was this national holiday, Passover, uh, birthed out of? It was birthed out of uh, Egypt when the Hebrew people were, found themselves as slaves in Egypt. And then you guys know the story of Moses and eventually the last plague where the, the Hebrews painted the blood of a lamb over their doorpost and uh, the spirit of God passed over them, saved them. But the firstborn from everyone and everything in Egypt was killed that night, ushering the Hebrew people out of the bondage of Egypt and to wander in the desert for 40 years in pursuit of the promised land. They eventually, uh, through Joshua, enter and conquer the promised land. This is the first time now that they kind of live and dwell as an independent nation. The 12 tribes of Israel live and they eventually conquer that whole area that we now see as Israel, known as Judea back then. And so uh, during that time frame, there's 12 tribes that live independently and autonomous unto themselves, but they were governed by uh, these men that were called judges. And these judges would travel to the different cities and the different towns and the different regions riding on a donkey. And uh, that's how basically the government of Israel was set up until one day uh, they went to the judge of that time, which was Samuel, and they said, hey, I think it's time for us as a nation to have a king. And so Samuel says, are you sure you want to do that? This is kind of a theocracy. We look to God as our king, but now you're looking to the other nations and you want to be like them. And they said, yes, that's what we want. And so eventually Samuel anointed Saul. Saul became the first king. And then after him, it was David. And then after him, it was Solomon, go ahead. You guys can talk to me. I'm not scared of you. I love interaction. So, um, so the third king in that progression was Solomon. And there was one nation under an Israelite king. But then after uh, Solomon's son takes the throne, just a little bit into that, the two nations, uh, they, they split into essentially two nations, Israel and Judah. Uh, the ten, 10 northern tribes is referred to as Israel, and then the two tribes that stayed in Jerusalem and the surrounding area of Judea is known as Judah. And so 
uh, eventually what happens is the world power of Assyria rises up and they come and they conquer the 10 northern tribes. And what Assyria does uh, as they began to take and consume land in that area was they would take the conquered people and disperse them out into their conquered lands and replace them with foreign people. And so the, the capital of Israel at that time, not Judah, but Israel was Samaria. And so now if you read the New Testament, you realize that the Jews don't like the Samaritans. Why? Because the Samaritans were people that the Assyrians displaced. They took the Jews away and they put foreigners in there. The foreigners then mixed the worship of Yahweh with their gods. And so that's why the Jews didn't get along with the Samaritans, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. So, but then Judah remains. You guys know the history of both Israel and Judah. It was kind of good king, bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king, good king, bad king, bad king. And eventually God was going to bring judgment on that land like he did with the northern tribes. And uh, Assyria was conquered by a, a world empire known as Babylon. So Babylon eventually comes and uh, sieges Jerusalem and destroys it and the temple. And Babylon takes back people into cap captivity for 70 years. The people in that grouping, we know four of them very well. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. You guys are getting better at this. And then the fourth one is Daniel, right? And so there's a whole book that he wrote in the Old Testament that uh, brings us through that period of time. And then eventually King Nebuchadnezzar passes away Babylon is conquered by the Medes and then the Persians. So the Persians take over and then the king of Persia, Darius, essentially there's a couple of kings that let Jews return. But under Darius, uh, people like Ezra and Nehemiah return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And so who was a friend of those two guys? Zechariah, the prophet, whom we just read that was quoted by Matthew. This is 500 years before Jesus comes onto the scene. They are reestablishing their independence after being suppressed and beat down and, and uh, taken captive. And so Zechariah, in the midst of a resurgence, says, behold, your king comes to you riding on a donkey. And so they live in independence for a good while. But then there's a young man that comes onto the world scene, but our Old Testament stops there and ceases to be a history book. From Malachi to Matthew, there's like 400 years where we're, if we use that only as our history book, we say, well, what happened? I don't know exactly what happened until the birth of Christ. Well, what happened was there was a young man that came onto the scene. He, he was from Greece. His name was Alexander the Great. And if he was playing the board game Risk with all of us, he, to he would have totally dominated. He would have just beat us and taken all of the countries and all of the territory until we were left with nothing. Because like a lightning bolt, he took over the whole known world at that time, including Judea. So what Ezra and Nehemiah had worked to reestablish was gone. They still existed, but now they were being suppressed. And time went on, Alexander the Great dies as a young man and leaves his kingdom to uh, three of his uh, commanders. And those three commanders kind of fight amongst themselves and one of the battlegrounds is Judea. And uh, at a certain point, one of the commanders says, I'm not gonna let these Jews live like they want to live and do what they just want to do all the time. And to prove my point, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm going to go into their temple and I'm going to tell one of their priests to take a pig and sacrifice it in their temple to my God. Well, if you know anything about the Hebrews, you know that they wouldn't touch a pig. They wouldn't eat a pig. And they for sure would not sacrifice a pig in their temple to a God other than Yahweh. And so you see something kind of rising up and building. This is a nation of people that are called by God in a land that was promised by God, in a city that if you read the Psalms, you see that it highlights the importance of Jerusalem as God's city, a place where he chose to dwell. And so here's this epic tipping point moment where the Greek commander is saying, I want you to sacrifice a pig on this altar. And one of the priests, one of the Hebrew priests, 
gets ready and prepares it. And right when he's about to do it, this man named Mattathias Hasmonean, something just rose up inside of him. He was, a, he was a Hebrew priest and he said, not on my watch is this gonna happen. I'm tired of what's been happening, but this is a step in the wrong direction. And he takes a sword and he kills the Hebrew priest and then he starts this revolution and kicks the Greeks out of Jerusalem. Well, if you're a Greek commander and you hear about this insurrection in one of the territories that you oversee, what are you gonna do? You're going to send some troops over there, right? Squash this rebellion. These are just Jews, no big deal. So he sends a troop over there. Well, Mattathias had rallied a crowd of people and family members, and they confront these troops, and they hold their ground, and they defeat them badly. So the, command, the Greek commander decides he's going to send another set of troops, but larger, more powerful. What happens? They get kicked out again. This Mattathias Hasmonean, his family was known as the Maccabees. This is the Maccabean time period in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Maccabees means the hammer. These guys were incredible. Greece was the most powerful nation the world had ever seen. And these few Jewish men were like, no way, man, not on my watch. This is God's city. This is God's place. And we are God's people. And so they established their independence over the Greek empire. And so they, they live in independence for a while until another world empire rises up. And the world empire that rose up after the Greeks was the Romans. And so here we are inching our way towards the time of Christ. Why were there Roman soldiers in Jerusalem in the New Testament? Because they had risen up and taken over most of that which Greece had conquered, and even more so. And so now we see the Hasmonean family, the Maccabees, had died off. They were priests and even set themselves up as kings in Judea. But they had died off, and then Judea and Israel was conquered by the Romans. And so here we are with Jesus riding a donkey into an ancient city that's being occupied by Roman soldiers under the leadership of Caesar. And you know that some of the ancestors of the, of the Hasmoneans, the ancestors that have been told the stories of the Hebrew people bucking the Egyptians, bucking the Greeks, look at the Romans and go, I don't know that you know who we are because we're not going to put up with this that much longer. Yeah, keep taxing us and see what's going to happen, right? And so for three and a half years, this man is just traveling through the Judean countryside, Nazareth, Galilee, as far as Jericho, into Jerusalem before this, right? And now it's come to the end of Christ's ministry on this earth. He stops at Bethany. He picks up two donkeys and he takes a two-mile journey into Jerusalem. Jerusalem at that point was a town that uh, had about 50,000 or 100,000 on high estimate in population, 100,000 people. But then as the Hebrew people would come to celebrate Passover, it would swell to a million people. Can you imagine the chaos of a city that just inflated like that from people coming all over the nation thinking that they're not really visiting, but that's their city. It's part of their heritage. And so it's mass chaos. And the Sunday that Jesus comes into Jerusalem is the same day that the young boys of each family would choose a lamb and parade that lamb through the city for only a few days later, that would become the sacrificial lamb. So do you see where I'm going here? Let me... Fast forward all the way to the end. The crowds are, are crying out Hosanna. The city comes out to meet them and asks one question. Who is this? Who is this guy? And I think as we dive into this, we're going to land with asking that question of ourselves. Who do we see this guy being in our life. So let's open this up uh, and get into 
uh, some of the details of that. Does that help you guys out to understand that if all of us were there in procession, waving palm branches, throwing down our cloaks, saying Hosanna, does that help you understand what we would know, what we were looking for? Maybe this is the guy. Maybe this is the time. Maybe he's going to take care of what we've all wanted. So it was a slow procession, if you're following in your notes. Uh, it says a donkey and a colt. One of the things that I love about Matthew is that uh, he was a tax collector. And so when you're reading the Gospels, there's, this story is, is accounted for in all four of the Gospels. But only in Matthew does it tell us that there were two donkeys. But I think I can trust Matthew because he was a tax collector, meaning he paid attention to the details. Uh, we had John write another gospel, but you'll see in his stories, he kind of takes uh, a, a perspective of, well, I'm Jesus' best friend. And so really all that matters is that, you know, that Jesus loved me, you know? And, and Matthew's here like jotting in his notepad, putting it in his pocket, pulling it out. Okay, there were two donkeys. And let me look in the scroll here. Yeah, it was Zechariah that uh, said that this was gonna happen. Um, and so, uh, and then you have Mark that wrote his gospel, but Mark wasn't there. Mark heard it from Peter. And we know Peter's emotional state a lot of the times. You know, in the Garden of Gethsemane that we're going to get to, Peter was the one that took out the sword and tried to cut off somebody's head and got his ear. <laughs> Remember that? So I don't think Peter was taking notes a lot. Um, and then Luke wasn't there either. Uh, he heard it from uh, a couple of the disciples, sometimes, sometimes uh, through Peter himself as well. But uh, Luke traveled with Paul later on. So uh, I'm going to rely on Matthew's account. And Matthew tells us that, we're two, that there were two donkeys. Well, Evan, why does that matter? In felt board Sunday school lesson, uh, there was always only ever one donkey. And uh, getting the point of this is that it was Palm Sunday and there were palm branches and Jesus makes it into Jerusalem, right? And come back next week because it's Easter. That's typically what uh, is, is proclaimed here, right? So Evan, why are you spending a couple of minutes here talking about two donkeys? Because I found something that I want to share with you guys when I was digging through some commentaries, this is not, this is not from me. This is from somebody that uh, I opened up uh, a couple of commentaries and was str struggling with this point. And uh, I found this and I was like, wow, this is absolutely incredible. But um, let me establish this point first. Who rode on donkeys? At that point, the judges were the ones that rode on donkeys before horses were prominent in all of Judea. See, it was the Greeks and the Romans that kind of brought the horses into the land of Israel. And so who rode on donkeys? It was the judges. And if you had aught against your neighbor, you would have to wait for the judge to come to your village or come to your town and settle that dispute. And then probably one of the shepherd boys would eventually see this old man riding on a donkey towards your village or towards your city. And so he'd run back, get the city. The city would come out and welcome the judge with honor, probably hold a feast that night and then set up court at the city gates the next day. So Jesus chooses following what was prophesied of him to ride on a donkey. I've always kind of ever thought that he rode on a donkey just because, man, he's been walking all across a nation for three and a half years. Like, that, you know, he deserves to ride on a donkey on, you know, on holiday. It's like, okay, finally, yes, let's do, let's do this. Everything Jesus did was done with intention. And so follow me on the banners behind me as well. That day where all the boys are bringing their lambs and parading them through the city in ownership of a lamb that they would eventually slaughter as recompense for their own sin. Jesus chooses to ride on a donkey proclaiming that he is judge. So we celebrate him as king, a victorious king with a palm branch. He chooses to ride on a donkey and say, I've come as a judge. So he enters as a judge. 
And a few days later, he ends up saying, yeah, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans tells us. It also tells us that the wages of that sin is death. So when we are judged, we are found wanting and deserved of death. But then the judge gets off of his chair and climbs onto my cross. The judge that could send me there instead sends himself there. That's in one verse. He rides a donkey into a city that's rightfully his to sit as king. But he says, yeah, I'm king. Yeah, I'm the Messiah, but not in the same way that you are anticipating. I'm the judge. I'm your judge, but I'm also your savior. That's going to put the next five lessons into perspective. See, Matthew, getting back to the point that there were two donkeys, this commentator said that it's interesting that he rode on a colt of a donkey that had never been ridden before. Well, if you take any animal that's never been ridden or never carried a burden and you put a burden or a person on him, he will start to get a little bit sketchy and won't go where you want him to go unless his mother is beside it, showing it its way. And this commentator said that he believes that the donkey that's used to carrying a burden represents Judaism. And the colt birthed out of that donkey represents Christianity. The donkey used to carrying the burden of the law, Judaism, births Christianity that no longer carries the burden of the law, but simply carries Christ. Don't tether yourself back to what you should or shouldn't do. Don't condemn yourself about living up to the law because you know what? None of us can live up to the law. We can't do it. We must simply just lift Christ as high as we can. And that's a much easier burden. Does that make sense? Next point, if you're following along in the notes, this is a fill in the blank. Drop your cloak on the ground. Drop your cloak on the ground. This is uh, verse eight. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the ground. So um, we as going back to, let's come out of Jerusalem and come back to America right now, we see throwing a cloak on the ground as something that we've read in fairy tales. This is where the knight uh, throws his cape or his cloak on the muddy pathway so that the maiden in waiting or the princess doesn't have to get her uh, shoes muddy, right? And so this is kind of an act of chivalry. Well, that's the American mindset. That's the Western mindset, but it's not the Eastern mindset. It's not the way that the Hebrews understood that. See, in 2 Kings, there's a story about um, a man named Jehu. He was the commander of an army. And uh, Elisha was the prophet at that time. And he looked at his servant and he said, I want you to travel to where Jehu and the army is. And I want you to speak to Jehu and I want you to take your flask of oil and I want you to anoint him as king. So Elisha's servant goes and he anoints Jehu to be king. And he finds Jehu sitting with uh, these soldiers who are probably sitting around a campfire. And he says, hey, Jehu, will you come to this tent? I have something to say to you. He goes into the tent, uh, just the servant and Jehu. The servant dumps the oil over the head of Jehu and says, thus saith the Lord, you're king. And then the servant hightails it out of there. He just like runs. He doesn't say goodbye to the soldiers. He just like runs. Jehu comes out of the tent and the soldiers go, what was that about? And he goes, he just anointed me king. Instantly, it says that those soldiers cast their outer garments off of themselves, making a pile on the steps to become a throne. And they sit Jehu on a pile of outer garments as a makeshift throne and immediately say, 
Long live the king. Jehu is king. And they start proclaiming that and spreading the word everywhere. So what would we know if we were holding a palm branch on Palm Sunday, just outside the ancient city of Jerusalem? We would know this, that if we dare to cast our cloak on the ground in front of Jesus, we're not making an easy pathway for a colt. We are casting our vote that he is king for my life and for my people, right? And so I brought my coat here, like I said earlier, and uh, I, I, I like my coat. Uh, I got it at Target. It was 50% off. Um, and so if you've hung around me this winter season, uh, you've probably seen me wear this. And uh, if we had spent any time together, if I had been over at your house for dinner or you um, and I had hung out someplace um, and I had happened to leave it somewhere, it, if, if you and I are more than just acquaintances, if you and I are friends and I left this somewhere and you saw it, then you would probably say, hey, that's Evan's jacket. We need to get that back to him, Right. Because sometimes we can identify uh, the ownership of something because we've seen somebody wear it multiple times. Well, back then, if you had an outer garment or a cloak, you probably knew the person who made it. Uh, And you probably got measured for it. And you probably waited for it to be made. And then you would wear it for a long time and you didn't own a washer or a dryer. So not only did it kind of uh, become the appearance of who you were, but it started to smell like you. Um, If you left it anywhere, chances are that somebody would say, oh, that's his coat. That's her coat. It becomes an identifying mark because we as Hebrews in that time couldn't go down to Walmart, Target, Kohl's, Old Navy, wherever you shop, and just get an extra coat and have two or three or four coats, depending on the season or the fashion or the style, right? You had one outer garment. And so it identified you. And here we are. Jesus is coming down that hill, the Mount of Olives, approaching that gate in Jerusalem, and we see as we welcome him in. See, the, the scholars think that there was probably upwards of 3,000 people surrounding Jesus at that point. And then you've got a million people in that city hearing praises like we heard sung today, but not in the context of walls and ceilings. In the context of open country with it reverberating off of the stones of the wall of the city and of the wall of the temple. And so the city would have heard this great throng of voices. They would have been able to look out at the hill and say, what is going on? And they would have come out to see what was going on. And they would have come out with the question, who is this? And the question would have been answered sometimes by seeing somebody take off their outer garment and cast it on the ground, anticipating that Jesus was going to come riding this way and then grab a palm branch and hold it up victorious. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save us. And so they would see that as them casting their vote as he is king. Those are fighting words if you're Romans. Those are messianic words if you're Hebrew. And so something is starting to stir. So what does that look like for us today, though? Are we willing to take that which identifies us and cast it into the causeway of Christ? I'm not talking about a coat. I'm talking about that which we identify ourselves with, a title Father, mother, husband, wife, business owner, teacher, mentor. What is it in your life that Christ would love to have you put down 
and cast as a claiming vote of his sovereignty in your life? Does it look like jumping behind the coffee bar and serving somebody a cup of coffee and welcoming them into a church? Does it look like coming here for two services, one to serve in the nursery or in kids' church and one to join in corporate worship here? We don't have to change the world. We just have to allow Jesus to stretch and claim the limits of our influence and of our identity. Does that make sense? But here's what happened to those cloaks. They were trodden over by a donkey. And so whether I stood this close and watched it happen to my coat, or whether I got pushed back in the crowd and didn't see it, whether I, never, whether I didn't return to pick up my coat until I had gone into the city and then came and sorted through the cloaks that were on the ground. Eventually, I would come and I would pick up my cloak, and on the back of it, there would be hoof marks of a donkey, maybe sandal prints of disciples. Whatever it was, I would eventually put that cloak back on and not knowing if I had the time or the ability to get it laundered and washed in the context of a week where I would gladly, don't we do this? Don't we gladly participate in the emotional response of corporate worship? And then with the markings of that still on our life, within the context of a week, we change our language from Hosanna to crucify him. That there were some that have hoof marks on the back of their cloak, putting them in that context. that found themselves on the other side just a few days later. So why would they do that? Because Hosanna, like Pastor Jonathan said, actually means save us now. I'll gladly join in this procession because I want relief from the oppression of the Romans. But if you don't give me relief now, then oh well, let's just crucify him. He's not who we were looking for. He's not what we expected. See, because we sometimes wear Christianity like a label and not like a bloodline. And so we answer the question of where do you go on Sunday? Where do you go on the weekend to uh, worship? Or what? who are you? And you say, well, I'm a Christian. And that helps us fill out a form or that helps us to answer a question very quickly. But do you understand that sometimes we want relief and Jesus wants reconciliation? He came to save our spiritual being. And we cry out sometimes if we were to document our prayers, they would be a lot about our physical needs, our physical wants. We even barter with the Lord. God, if you'll do this right now, I'll do this. And Jesus says, I'm more concerned about reconciliation than I am about your relief. That's why he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. I'm going to skip through the next point. Rocks cry out. That verse that's written in your notes uh, from Luke talks about the Pharisees telling Jesus to silence that crowd because they knew that if that crowd continued, Rome would have a problem with it. It would be an insurrection and people would die. See, the Pharisees found their authority under Roman rule. They found their fruitfulness under the same oppression, similar 
to the Romans, their oppression though was through the law. It reminds me of a story when David brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem and he was dancing and worshiping so wildly that he cast off his outer garments. You remember that. He brings the Ark of the Covenant into the city and then he returns to his house and his wife, Michal, meets him at the door and says, how dare you worship like that? How dare you cast off your outer garments? And David's response was what? I'll become even more undignified than this. And from that point on, it said that Michal never had any children. And so the question here is, is our fruitfulness more connected to our worship than what we dare imagine? Jonathan and I aren't saying, hey, you got to raise your hand, you got to jump up and down, and you got to take off your coat and get all jubilee in here, right? <laughs> but I'm saying that probably what the Lord is looking for is an authentic response. If you're a singer, then sing. If you want to raise your hand, then raise your hand. Whatever you do, make sure you're connecting with the Lord in worship and not just spending time in a service. The city and the crowd. If you're filling in the blanks, a city is stirred when Jesus is proclaimed king. A city is stirred when Jesus is proclaimed king. And, we, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. See, when we live as though Jesus is our king, that's when a city gets stirred up. That's when people start to ask a question. What's going on here? Why are you behaving the way that you're behaving? Why are you participating in the things that you participate? Why are your kids on fire for God? Why do I want my kids to hang out with your kids? Oh, because you chose to identify with Christ. You chose to say he is my king. So let me come down here and talk with you guys a little bit. If you are watching online, I apologize. It might get just a little bit dark, um, but I want to kind of see the people that I'm talking to and start to ask a question and spin to a close this message of who was there with us when Jesus rode into Jerusalem and when a crowd starts to worship and when a crowd starts to proclaim Jesus as king, then the city comes out to see what's going to happen and the city always comes out with the question, who is he? So who answers that question? Could it be that Lazarus answers that question? Just a few days ago in Bethany, the little town where Jesus started this procession, he raised Lazarus from the dead. He took a man who was dead four days, a man who was so dead that his sister said, no, 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 don't open that tomb. He, it'll stink. He's not just sick. He's not just in a hospital. He's stinky dead. So when the city comes out and says, who is this? Lazarus says, I don't know exactly who this guy is. I've heard the stories about him. I've been witness to some of his ministry, but let me tell you who he is for me. He raised me from the dead. I was dead. I couldn't tell you what happened until I heard his voice from a dark cave. And from the darkness of that cave, I walked out into life again. So who is he? I don't know who he is for you, but for me, he's my savior. He took me from death to life. Some of us, he's done the same thing from a broken relationship back to a restored marriage. Who else was there? He came before Bethany. He came from Jericho. And outside of Jericho, he saw a man that 
He was so blind that we call him blind Bartimaeus. And he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, what can I do for you? And he says, Jesus, I want to see. And Jesus reaches out and heals him. So when Bartimaeus hears, who is this? He says, I don't know who he is for you, but for me, I once was blind and now I see and I'm walking towards a city that me and you and all of us have desired to see. It's God's city and now I've come over this hill for the very first time in my life with the ability to see and I see the promised land and he's leading me to it. So who is he for you? I don't know, but for me, I once was blind, but now I see. Was it possible that the woman who had the issue of blood who never could have made that pilgrimage to that city because she couldn't have been in those crowds. But one day she pressed through with the thought that maybe he's not just a prophet and maybe he's not just a good man. Maybe he's something else. And she reached out and all she got was the hem of his garment and power so much went out from him that he stopped and he said, who touched me? And the disciples said, how can you say who touched me? We're surrounded by people. We're constantly surrounded by people. And he waited until she came bowing down to him. And, he, and she said, for 12 years and many doctors, I've suffered with this. Something that caused me to be so lonely and so depressed and so isolated. So who is he for you? I don't know, but for me, he welcomed me back to a fullness of life that I couldn't ever hope to explain. Just follow, because he'll do something like that for you. Who is this? The city asks. And the disciples say, I can't answer that question. If you would have known me three and a half years ago, I was just a fisherman. I spent my days catching fish and a man walked past my boat and he said, follow me. And there was something about that man that made me get out of my boat and leave all that I had ever known. In the last three and a half years, I can't explain it in the answer of one question. I could tell you about a time where we got out of a boat and a man full of demons came running up to us. I was so scared, I jumped back into the boat. But Jesus, he gently walked up to that man and he talked to him. And a few minutes later, demons got sent to a herd of 2,000 pigs. I, I was there, I watched 2,000 pigs jump off into the Sea of Galilee and that man was clothed and in his right man, right mind, was that man in that crowd? Was that man there to answer that question? Who is this? I don't know who he is for you, but I know who he is for me. He's redeemed my life. He's made me whole. He's made me want to live so passionately that I would gladly cast my cloak, my identity onto the ground and say, Jesus, you are king. But Jesus, you're not just king, Jesus. You're the judge of my life. You came riding into that city on a donkey. And what I deserved, you took. So who is this Jesus that stirs a city? Who is this Jesus that changes hearts and lives? I know who he is for me. Do you know who he is for you? That's where we're going. Please join us in this process, not just for six weekends. Join us in this life of the pursuit of who he is for us. Heavenly Father, we come before you right now. We recognize, Jesus, that 
you have every right to sit on the throne of our lives and demand that we worship you as king. But even in that moment where you could have established yourself on the Davidic throne, you came humble on the colt of a donkey to prove to us that we couldn't live bearing the burden of the law, but we can live lifting Jesus as high as we can. So Jesus, if there's anyone in this room today or watching online or listening via podcast that hasn't answered that question, God, I ask that you would stir in their hearts right now and begin to help them shape and form their answer of who you are for them, the context of their life. We love you. We honor you. And we decide today to follow you. Jesus, we have decided to follow you and to enter into a life-giving relationship with you. Take our hearts, take our lives. Make dead men come alive. Make blind men see. Make lonely women enter into a context of an abundant life in you, God. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.